Hello, hello, and welcome to another edition of the ESPN F1 podcast. As you've probably already worked out by now, I'm not Alexis Nunes. I'm Nate Saunders. Uh, I'm being joined by Lauren Edmonton. The two of us have cracked open a beer. It's a bit later than we thought we might be doing this podcast, but we're going to be picking through the Hungarian Grand Prix. Lazar, I believe you've got your beer in hand, ready to go. I do, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was... It wasn't the best race, was it? So, um, yeah, I feel like a little bit of inspiration at the end of the night. We've been in the office. Uh, we've done a bunch of Zoom calls with drivers, team principals, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully we've got some extra info to add uh, to the race. But, yeah, it's, uh, it'll be interesting going back through it and uh, trying to pick out the good bits. Absolutely. And um, Alexis outrageously uh, abandoned this this weekend to do FA Cup coverage for ESPN. Oldest club competition in the world gets precedent over Formula 1. Outrageous. But Formula 1 and me is 70 years old, as opposed to the FA Cup, which I should imagine is well over a century old. I don't 1871, know exactly. according to research that I just did before we started. Um, well, yeah. Just over 100 years before Ipswich Town won it uh, in 1978, for anyone listening. Um, but yeah, so a pretty, like you say, uh, I guess a race where all the drama seemed to be front-loaded in the race because we had a wet circuit at the beginning of the race and actually quite a cool situation where the track is pretty much dry before the race, but not quite dry enough to start the race on dry tyres. So you had all the guys really starting on intermediates and wet tyres. And we'll get into what Haas did in a little bit. But obviously the main drama was that one car didn't even make it to the grid in one piece. Max Verstappen sliding off at turn 12. Christian Horner told us later he had about three or four offs on that outlap that they do. Um, and yeah, it was pretty dramatic. You know, we I, I was just turning on the TV as that happened. And then you said, oh, Max has gone off. And, you know, we cast our mind back to Brazil 2016 when Grosjean did that before the race. He didn't make the start, I don't believe, in the end. You know, the damage was so bad. But you you heard what Max said in his in his post-race conference. So kind of talk us through a little bit what he said that was like, because it sounded absolutely hectic from the Red Bull side. And they just got it done. I mean, we're talking seconds, you know, before they actually had to, to leave the car. Yeah, well, Max was hugely thankful to his team. And uh, no yeah, no surprise, really, considering what happened. Uh, he made a pure error. I mean, like, you shouldn't really be pushing on your way to the grid, but the drivers do go out there to try and find out where the grip is because the next time they come round, it's going to be uh, the first lap of the race and they're going to be fighting for position. So if you know there's a little bit of grip offline somewhere, you know you can go to that part of the track, then you'll do it. So Max was entering turn 12, which has actually been a problem corner throughout the weekend, uh, and especially for the Red Bulls. Max had a spin there in practice as well. So we've seen that Red Bull really struggle with the balance of the car and they were way off where they should have been in qualifying and it looked like an awful weekend had just got a huge amount worse because they weren't going to make the start of the race. And uh, yeah, Max said he hit the brakes, locked up, let off the brakes to try and get everything running again, hit the brakes again, locked up again and before he knew it was in the barrier. So uh, the damage was um, to the front wing, which was demolished. I think he left that in the barrier from, uh, from what I remember drove over it to get to get out of there as well you know so that could have really caused some trouble well that's it he drove over it and that's when you saw the extent of the suspension damage because you saw that front left tire go into the into the barrier and you thought oh that looked nasty maybe he gets away with it but then you could see that it wasn't properly uh, basically connected to uh, the, the the steering suspension anymore and it was uh, the track rod and the pull rod that were broken and um, Christian Horner uh, as you mentioned uh, earlier he spoke about it afterwards and he said that had won the wishbones the wishbones being the kind of big triangular bits that are very obvious in the suspension, uh, all kind of aerodynamically designed. Uh, had one of those broken, then uh, they would have been in uh, big trouble and they basically wouldn't have started the race. But they were able to replace the track rod and the push rod, uh, which is a remarkable achievement. Like, in terms of brilliant kind of 
mechanics around the world, you know, you'll struggle to find a group of six guys, and there's about six that were working on it, who are able to do that, and get the car back out there in a reasonable shape, because, you know, that affects your uh, toe angle, it affects your uh, camber, all that kind of stuff. So usually, if you were going to make that kind of change on a car, you'd roll it back into the garage, you'd line up all those things, you'd make sure it's all back where it should be, and then and then you'd go. So, yeah, it was it was a truly uh, in, in incredible effort. Yeah, you talk about remarkable job. I mean, Christian Horner was saying that usually in that environment that you mentioned where they push it back into the garage and kind of take a step back and then do that work, it would have taken them around 90 minutes, you know, doing everything, making all the checks that you had to do, et cetera, making sure everything's been done. But on the grid, like you say, just a frantic job. And they did that in between 20 minutes and 30 minutes. I don't think we've got an official time for how long it took, but, you know, Horner was pretty blown away by it as well. And I guess Verstappen then basically, I suppose, was thinking, well, the pressure's on me now to to repay this effort. And I think that that's what was so impressive about this drive afterwards was that he really did. By turn one, I mean, he made an enlightening start. We were talking all of yesterday about how big that decision was for Racing Point to start on the mediums. And in the end, it was kind of negated anyway because they all started on the intermediate tyre. Verstappen was third, gone from seventh to third in a car that we thought wasn't even going to make the start of the race. Um, and then gets ahead of, leads the race, four laps in just after being in the wall about half an hour before. It's a pretty remarkable race. I mean, um, I asked Christian, did they worry that there was damage they hadn't detected and whatever? And he said, there always is. But, you know, Max put, put his faith in the car and repaid the team. What did you make of his drive? You know, we talk a lot about how good Max is. This seemed to be one of those performances where, given everything that went on beforehand, you could have understood if it maybe crumbled in that race environment and not delivered in the way he did to drive to second. Well, I think Max one of those drivers that um, if you put them in a difficult situation, he, he tends to perform even better. And um, it was a really good mix of uh, aggression and control early in the race when the conditions were still bad uh, to get himself, as you say, up to third place so quickly. And then from then on, it was it, it was really, again, it was almost a bit like the Steermark Grand Prix where um, he had Valtteri Bottas chasing him down. But in this instance, he was able to hold him off. So um, aided a little bit there by the nature of the track and how difficult it is to overtake at the Hungar Ring. But also, um, I think uh, it was just a very, very well-managed race uh, on the tyres that he had in the car and a slightly different strategy to Mercedes. Uh, Red Bull went after the intermediates to the medium to the hard tyre and uh, um, Mercedes went medium, medium and then put Bottas on a hard tyre knowing that he would drop back with a pit stop but it would then give him a chance to hunt him down and overtake, which he didn't manage to do. But one more lap and uh, it probably would have gone Valtteri's way. But, you know, the race is 70 laps. Everyone knows that from the start. And, uh, and that's what you've got to deal with. So, uh, um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's what Rebel did. And, uh, and Max came out on top. Um, talking about pre-race drama, the race still hadn't started. And we had some more interesting stuff going on when we had the formation lap. And this wasn't just dramatic at the start of the race. It also caused some intrigue after the race as well. But the house drivers both coming into the pits uh, at the end of the formation lap and changing onto slip tyres, both of them together. They curiously they started on different tyres as well. Magnussen, I believe, was on the full wet. Grosjean was on the intermediate. They both came in for slick tyres, and when everyone came in for slicks, about three or four laps in, as we mentioned, Max led. Suddenly, he had this amazing situation where he had Magnussen in third place, Grosjean in fourth place. An absolute, absolutely blinding strategy call. They obviously dropped through the order as the quicker cars kind of got back into the field, but. That was great to see, wasn't it? And and the chaos of maybe the first race was all towards the end of the, the Grand Prix. We didn't have as much last time out. This one, it was all front-loaded at the start of the race, and the Haas guys were right in the thick of it. 
Um, it's great to see Magnuson up there, especially. I know you're a big Grosjean fan, but Magnuson was the guy who kind of stayed up there, got ninth place when he finished, and we'll talk a bit bit later about why that became tenth place. Um, but a pretty feel good story for Haas, given that they've had a tough start to the season and actually a tough kind of year and a half, all things considered. That's right. And also, if you look at the nature of that car um, and how much it's lacking in straight line speed, somewhere like the Hungaroring is actually a track where they can capitalise and get some points. So uh, it's good that they did. Um, yeah, it, it was. It, it's, it's the nature of that kind of race when it's so clearly about to become a dry track, but you've got to start on the inters because it's not quite that ready yet. And, uh, and if you're at the back of the grid, you may as well take a pump, right? In doing that, they tripped themselves up slightly and that's why they ended up with a post-race penalty because uh, in order to tell the drivers to come back in, they had to communicate with them on the radio. And uh, I can't remember exactly when that regulation came in, but it's a fairly recent one uh, that the engineers are not allowed to communicate with the drivers on the formation lap. Now, that sounds a bit weird. It's very F1, but there is a reason for it. And that's basically because they wanted to get uh, the engineers out of coaching the drivers through the start. Um, picking the exact clutch point and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and so they wanted to put more of the race start, that crucial moment as the lights go out, in the driver's hands. And so they removed the engineer from it. However, in telling their drivers to come into the pits, uh, Haas put the engineer right back in there. Um, but it was, still, it was still worth it because I don't think they would have um, finished in the top 10 had they not made that decision. And effectively what it gave them, it wasn't so much that it gave them an advantage on the track in terms of being on the right tyres because it was still too early really for the slicks. But what it gave them was a free pit, pit stop because by the time everybody got going, they essentially had a 20 second advantage. So it was almost as if they started slightly on the wrong tyre, but only by a lap or two, but round at about kind of turn five, you know, that's realistically what, what, what the situation was. And because that gave them that track position on a track where it's difficult to overtake, uh, especially with the two cars lined up. So Grosjean had the rear gunner roll uh, and then Magnussen uh, was definitely the better driver today, but he was the guy who had um, a bit of protection there. Uh, it worked out perfectly, and, and that's how they managed to get in the points. But, of course, that 10-second penalty for talking to the driver on the formation lap dropped Magnussen from uh, what looked like a really well-earned ninth place uh, to tenth, which is still a point. Uh, it still gets Haas off the mark, which we were probably getting quite concerned about, uh, given the, uh, the, the early performances of that car. But um, yeah, it's, it's a shame it wasn't more, but at least it's a point. At least it's something to take away from it with a bold strategy decision as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> to anyone listening, it's worth tracking down. I think Formula One, they tweeted it, then they, they actually deleted the tweet when Magnussen had no longer finished ninth and then they've re-uploaded it. Now he's finished 10th. But um, it's his post-race radio and you don't often hear Magnussen displaying that amount of emotion. You know, a lot of whooping and hollering. Um, down the radio. He actually at one point threatens to kiss his race engineer, Gary Gannon, who used to be Grosjean's engineer and they've switched over those guys um, a couple of years ago. Um, and it, yeah, it sounds like a, a perfect race operationally from that perspective, ignoring the fact that they got a penalty for what they did in the formation lap. But you get the feeling that um, a team like that, a small team, and given everything of this year, I think that that'll be a really big boost for everybody working there. So moving on to the next talking point from before the race, and this is marginally before, and we're talking ever so marginally before, is Bottas's start. Now, there's a few quirks to this and some curious things, and I know you listened to his explanation about what happened, but we were really hoping that Bottas took the fight to Lewis at turn one. It's quite a long run down there. We talked about how good Max's start was. Valtteri had a terrible start. It was about seventh by turn one. But what happened when you saw the replay was he just reacted too early. You could see his car just move beforehand. He then stopped to kind of correct himself. And by the time it started, 
he clearly had everyone else behind him and kind of got the jump on him. So explain a little bit what happened there, Lawrence, and why didn't he get a penalty as well? Because it looked like a pretty clear jump start. Yeah, I, I, well, it did look like a jump start entirely. Um, so to go to the reasons why he moved too early, um, and this is actually fairly embarrassing for Valtteri, and it's also something that is these kind of errors which we see so often with Valtteri. But what happened was uh, he was getting the car set up to go, uh, had the clutch in the right position, uh, brake in the right position, throttle at the right amount. And when, on the Mercedes at least, when they have the throttle at exactly the right position for the start, you basically have about four or five red lights just on the top of the steering wheel where the, where the revs count up. And uh, that's to let them know that they've got it in the sweet spot. Uh, it seems that he uh, let a little bit of that throttle off and then those lights disappeared. He then reacted to those lights disappearing, let out the clutch and, uh, and away he went. But also realising he'd made a mistake within that very small period of time, hit the brakes, anti-stall kicked in, car kind of like looked after itself, made sure it didn't stall. And then by that time point, the lights had gone out and he could make a start. However, at that point, everyone else was already on their way and uh, he'd kind of, you know, dropped to, well, he dropped to sixth place at the start. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it was an unfortunate situation. Uh, Valtteri also said that his view of the uh, start like gantry was slightly blocked by the halo, which is interesting because it's something which we've had uh, drivers talk about before uh, when we basically first had the halo in F1 and they moved the start lights around. But interesting that Valtteri had that. He said he could see about two of the five lights um, on, on the left, but he couldn't see all of them. It shouldn't matter. But again, one of those little things that kind of uh, put him off. And, and so... I think when the driver is so on edge in that in, in that position, knows he has to nail the start. He really knew that was the only chance he had to beat Lewis today. And uh, and with all that kind of tension there, smallest little mistake, and it all goes wrong. Um, as to why it wasn't a jump start, well, the FI has a certain amount of kind of tolerance built into the system. Uh, so if you don't move too far within your uh, start grid position, uh, you know, when the lights go out and you go too early, then you get away with it. Uh, we saw the same with Sebastian Vettel in Japan last year. Um, so it's not unheard of. Uh, but I think in a way it's kind of fair because that rule is there to stop people just sprinting off down to the first corner before the lights go out. It's quite obvious why, you know, you have that rule in place. And of course, Valtteri didn't gain a benefit from it. But um, yeah, so often in the world of Formula One, the rules are so black and white that if you move a tiny bit before the start, you'd think you get penalised. But uh, actually, the FIA have built in some tolerance there. And it may be a little bit of common sense, actually, uh, to make sure that drivers who genuinely make a mistake, cover for it, uh, don't get um, don't get unfairly penalised. So that's what happened. But it ruined Valtteri's race. And um, right now, I don't know how you feel about it, but the Valtteri that we've seen at the last two races is not good enough to beat Lewis this year. And I think that's kind of what we talked about when he won the first race was that it was all good him having that discipline. It was it was it was solid, you know, it was a good race, but he had to do it and he had to be able to compete when Lewis is at the level he was at today. And even if that just had meant finishing second, you know, Nico Rosberg did a great job in 2016 of just racking up those second positions. On those days when Lewis was better than him, he still minimized the damage. And you talked about how small that moment was that that error happened, but that was a that turned into an eleven point swing, didn't it? Because Lewis left with the fastest lap, so gains 11 points on, on Valtteri. And that, to, you know, in a, in a fight, in a straight fight with Lewis is, is a huge amount of points to, to give up to your main rival. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think it's very encouraging if you, if, if you were buying the hype at all. I think we downplayed it quite a lot on that podcast after Austria about Bottas 3.0. It was kind of deflating to see that. And now we go to Silverstone where Lewis is always so good. 
we we wondered, didn't we, before we left the office, like how much of that is down to the fans there? You know, he's, there's always such a great support for Lewis there, and that obviously won't be the case this year. We'll all be behind closed doors again. But it's still a circuit that he's so strong at. So Bottas is going to have to really raise his game, come back from that. Um, and yeah, probably the, the best place to start with that will be working out a good place on the grid to start where you can see the lights. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does come down to small margins because it was a tenth of a second in qualifying and had that gone the other way. And if, if you looked at the uh, two traces of the two laps, Valtteri was right up there with Lewis, right until pretty much the last uh, couple of corners. You know, he'd lost a bit mid-lap, but then he gained a little bit back in the se- in the final sector. And then it turned into that tenth disadvantage. And this is so often the case with Valtteri. He's so close. He's so, so close. But then the other thing we see is that when things go wrong, when he's that tenth of a second off and he has to start second, it starts to spiral down. And it's not just within a race weekend where we can see that downward spiral. It's sometimes across the whole season, or at least it has been when he's at Mercedes. So that's my real concern is that, you know, the spiral which we, we, so, we so wanted to go upwards uh, to, give us a, to give Lewis a challenge. I'm not saying we don't want Lewis to win the championship. You know, he's, he's a fantastic driver and he's breaking records and he fully deserves it. But what we want to see is a championship fight that goes down to the wire. And at the moment, it's Mercedes v Mercedes. No one else is involved. So we're kind of hoping that Valtteri um, gets a little bit of luck going his way and, and kind of, you know, can compete with Lewis. But um, on the basis of uh, those first three races, uh, OK, Lewis had a bit of an off weekend to start with. But, you know, Lewis is quite clearly the world champion out of those two. And uh, and if they continue this way, he's going to get his seventh by the end of the year. And I tweeted it during the race. We haven't had a confirmation of Bottas's new deal. But one thing we haven't mentioned is George Russell is staying at Williams next year, which all but all but means that Bottas is getting a new contract. And I tweeted that whenever we get that news about Bottas, it seems to be followed up with at least one bad race, sometimes a couple. It seems like, you know, maybe they're coincidental, but it just seems that when he gets that deal, the, you know, the foot comes off the pedal a bit or maybe the focus comes off. It's very easy to, to think that that's the case. But at the same time, he always says how, how stressful it is to have that uncertainty you know, riding over his head the whole time. So maybe that wasn't the fairest suggestion to make, but certainly it's an easy one to, to make after today. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because he's clearly impacted by that, uh, you know, not knowing about his future and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And who knows, like you say, maybe it was actually a positive thing. Maybe it was driving him on because uh, last year he had to prove that he was the driver to have and not Ocon. And then this year it looked like it was going to be Russell. But obviously with that news confirmed that Russell's staying at Williams, uh, he hasn't got much to worry about there. But I don't know. I, I feel like when you talk to Valtteri and, uh, you know, he's quite an easy guy to, to read. He, you know, the, the, there's no nonsense with him. And when, you know, he says that, you know, he's truly motivated and, and all the rest of it, I do believe him. But uh, yeah, it's it's just when you're up against someone like Lewis, I don't know if there's another driver on the grid who who could deal with that. Certainly after several years of being beaten, uh, you know, I, I think the real uh, key is to come in there and do it. One, it kind of sheds light on what an achievement Rosberg, you know, uh, managed to put together. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Of all the drivers on the grid uh, that could do that, I think maybe Max is the only guy who would, who would really take the fight to Lewis just because he is so single-minded, so, so single-minded that, you know, he won't let anything uh, stand in his way. But hey. As today know. proved. Uh, as yeah, today proved, exactly. like you said. So exactly. that's a very good, that's a very good point. Um, looking, down the, looking down the order, one team I wanted to talk about very quickly because we were so excited about their potential for a podium on Saturday but racing point, the race kind of got away from them. I know Stroll finished in fourth position, which is a strong result still for that team. But it looked like such a strong weekend. They locked out the second row of the grid. Perez really didn't have the best of Grand Prix weekends. This seemed like a big missed opportunity. Is that is that a fair assessment, do you think? 
Um, I think it, it was a missed opportunity to some extent, but if you look at qualifying, the anomaly wasn't really racing point. Racing point's gap to Mercedes was more or less where it had been in Austria. The anomaly was that there wasn't a Red Bull in between the racing point and the Mercedes on the grid. Uh, and also that McLaren had clearly, it was clearly a track that didn't suit McLaren so well. Um, so racing point were kind of clear of, um, of rivals uh, for that kind of best of the rest behind Mercedes spot in qualifying. But then the true pace of the Red Bull kind of shone through in, in the race. I don't know what happened to Perez. Uh, I, I didn't see uh, any of his media afterwards or, or I, I haven't read what happened. So that would be an interesting one because I think Perez just had a weekend which wasn't like him. and Very strange. Very strange, but also comes just days after his future has been thrown into a huge amount of doubt. So we talk about drivers not knowing what they're doing next year and uh, having to deal with rumours and contracts and all the rest of it. Maybe that's exactly what happened to Perez this weekend. I don't know. Maybe that's hard. Maybe that's speculation. He said he was dizzy in qualifying, but that also seems very, very strange for an athlete uh, operating on that level. So um, I I think Racing Point were actually roughly where they should have been. Um, And realistically, Max in that Red Bull is still quicker than, uh, you know, Lance Stroll in the Racing Point. It just is. Uh, It's just that for whatever reason, Red Bull just did not get it together on qualifying day. And uh, and they've had a bit of a kind of messy weekend overall. So I think if you actually, if we had the situation where we're going back to the Hungaroring next weekend, I'm slightly glad we're not because we would be four races in a row. And I know a lot of people in the paddock and even us back in the office are starting to uh, feel the strain of working those those weeks in a row. But if you went back to the Hungaroring, I think you'd see that Red Bull would have ironed out a few of those issues. And you'd probably find that in that 0.9 second gap between uh, Lewis at the front and uh, Lance Stroll third on the grid. You'd you'd find a Red Bull in there, probably about zero point five seconds off. So, um, yeah, I, I think Racing Point uh, they got the fourth place, which is solid. Uh, I still think there's better things to come. I think they'll they'll get a situation where, where where they get a podium. But at the moment, the Red Bull is still the faster race car, uh, and you know we shouldn't kind of lose sight of that. Another honourable mention goes to the guy who finished behind Stroll and um, had a pretty difficult weekend up until the race, and that's Alex Albon in the other Red Bull. The guy who's had such an up-and-down season so far, just given everything that's happened with the retirement in Austria, he had a difficult weekend in Styria, and then on Saturday, yesterday, we really thought we'd seen that, you know, it was kind of a, a new low for him, and not and, and that's harsh as well, because I think a lot of things went against him, and he said he made a few mistakes in qualifying, was eliminated in Q2. We had George Russell on Sky basically defending him quite passionately, saying that he was being made to look like an idiot. It was kind of a, an insinuation, it seemed, there that maybe the uh, you know the situation of the team wasn't great for Alex, but really got his elbows out in the race. Some great moves on the Ferraris, especially to get himself back into position. And when I was speaking in the, when I was, uh, in the Christian Horner media session, Horner said that, you know, that that's, that's kind of what they didn't see from Gasly last year was when Gasly was up against it and on the ropes, he still wasn't putting himself in those positions to, to fight back. You know, he really looked like he kind of rolled over and accepted a lot of those positions. I think Albon, one of his big strengths that's going for him this year is that he really doesn't go down without a fight. So I think we saw that today. Um, and yeah, just just kind of nice to see the guy in the second Red Bull doing well because it's become such a well-told story that he that person struggles while Max puts in the race that we saw today. And then, you know, we can at least talk in, in favourable terms about Albon. Yeah, and it's clearly not a nice car to drive, that Red Bull. Um, and this will be the only hope, I think, that we start to get some... Uh, real challenge to Mercedes later in the season is that in kind of basically solving those underlying uh, handling issues that both drivers have, have been struggling with, 
that the Red Bull then comes alive and, and they can start to take the fight a little bit more. But um, yeah, Albon certainly struggled with that more. For me, yes, he's done well at kind of working his way back through the field. But realistically, he's still not quick enough. You know, that gap in pace is, is significant. And I know Gasly had it too. Uh, and, you know, I, I know it seems to be that kind of curse of the second Red Bull at the moment, but um, it, it can't go on that way. He can't finish the season that way. So, uh, you know, let, let's see what happens. Maybe he'll make some progress at the upcoming races. But um, if you, you know, we always judge drivers based against their teammate. And right now, you know, who's looking worse on the grid against their teammate? Well, you've probably got Nicholas Latifi down at Williams, but, you know, that's that's a tough job for a, Ricky, a rookie. Um and then you've got uh, Alex Albon against Max, I would say. You know, they're, they're the two really one-sided um, battles in, 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 among the teammates. And uh, unfortunately, that's the way you get judged as a Formula 1 driver. I, I still think Alex has got more in him. I really hope he does because he's a lovely guy. Um, uh, but hopefully we'll just see that come to life in, uh, in the next few races. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, it'd be, um, it'd be a real shame if the same happened to him. Um, Curiously, Albon was the last driver to finish on the same lap as Lewis. He was 78 seconds behind Lewis, so was pretty close to dropping off that lead lap. But it meant we saw Lewis lapping both Ferraris. And, you know, I think we've we've talked over and over again in the past couple of weeks about Ferrari season. Um, and yeah, it's just another race where they were just kind of an anonymous um, midfield team, it seemed. You know, at no point did they look like they were going to do anything better. Yeah, I, I think Vettel had a solid race given the, given the car and... Uh, I think one of the slight positives for Ferrari is that he finished ahead of the McLarens. And McLaren obviously had a, a pretty off weekend compared to what we saw in Austria. So there's your positives. Uh, the negatives uh, are on the clerk's side, which I don't think were really his fault. That was an awful strategy decision. To go straight on really, to the softs. Really strange. Really, really strange. I mean, I, I haven't seen a good explanation for it. The only thing I can think of is that when the track is still slightly damp, you're better off on a softer compound. But... Everyone knew, you know, from the information we had last year, remember the tyres haven't changed since last year. From the information we had last year, uh, from, you know, the running that we did get in, in Friday practice and Saturday morning practice, it was clear that the soft tyre was an awful, awful race tyre. You avoid it at all costs. Uh, you know, Mercedes were even doing that on, in Friday morning practice. They, they chucked it on early on, which they don't usually do. They usually save it because they just knew it was junk. They knew there was no point in spending any time on it apart from for the qualifying laps where you'd need the, the extra one lap pace. So at what point Ferrari thought that was a good idea? I don't know. I mean, you, you were actually in the Ferrari press conference, weren't you? I, I missed that one. So did was there an explanation? Was there any more of a general explanation as to what went wrong this weekend? There was. So this is where I've got to confess about the bad quality of my laptop here because I listened back to the recording on the like just as I got in and the I think Bonotto at one point tries to kind of explain it and it's just as well that my recording isn't great because you kind of hear him umming and ahhing through the explanation and what I what struck me in that was that Leclerc was just kind of sat there you can't really tell with the mask on but he looked pretty you know despondent and you, you can't tell everything from the eyes but you know it looked like a pretty awkward media session and everything this year at Ferrari looks pretty awkward and pretty you know they're just kind of downplaying everything. I think the drivers have accepted this is going to be a terrible year. Um, Leclerc as well, I was going to say, you know, while, while looking at the lower end of the points finishes, we have Ricardo in eighth, Science who finished in 10th, but jumped ahead of Magnussen after Magnussen's penalty, but Science passed Leclerc at the end, you know, and that's the guy that will be joining Leclerc next year at Ferrari. So, you know, Science was asked that on Thursday, you know, do you regret the Ferrari move yet? And he said he doesn't, it's too early to, but he must be looking at stuff like that and thinking, well, I'm passing the, the team I'm jumping to next year. 
but um but yeah like you say i guess at least they had one car finish ahead of the the, the highest finishing mclaren lando last lap lando there were no last lap heroics from lando nice fight though with leclerc at one point you know those two guys keeping it clean lando keeping the position one lap next lap leclerc getting past him um lando was down in 13th by the end so come on Lando, you gotta pull your pull your finger out otherwise the nickname dies Great <laughs> Uh, and, and and that battle, I think, was for 14th place. I remember getting quite excited about it. I was in the live commentary. And then I looked down the timing sheets. So I was like, oh, it's for 14th. Because, you know, we, we've been so used to seeing that both of those guys actually outperform their car. Uh, Leclerc did it, especially at the first Austria race, and then Lando at both. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of sad to see it's such a good battle for such a, a, a low-ranking place. But, hey, that was, that was the race here. But it shows you as well, doesn't it, kind of almost how quickly perceptions can change in F1. And when, when a guy's hot on form like Lando was, you know, when you see them have, which I suppose was an off race, but also a race where he's just, he's just, you know, whatever things have gone against him and he's finished a bit lower down the order. You're a bit deflated. Like, Oh, you know, that's not, that's not the Lando we've come to know. It's a bit like when science started the year as the second faster McLaren, the expectation for the end of last year was that he was going to be the quicker guy. So it's important not to get too carried away when, when people are informed because they can quickly come out of it again. Um, but we're still a big fan of Lando on the show. I feel like Alexis would want us to say that before we, uh, before we moved on. Yeah. yeah, and also I think some good good tracks coming up. So uh, the nature of this calendar this year means that most of the high downforce um, kind of slow and twisty tracks are done because Hungary was basically the only one left. So uh, yeah, move to Silverstone, we'll see a little bit more of probably the magic we saw in uh, in Austria. So I think McLaren can walk away from this one, except that you know they didn't get exactly what they wanted, but at least science was in the points and, and they'll roll it on. Still, I think they're still third in the in the Constructors' Championship. Which had had you told McLaren that after uh, three races at the start of the year, they would definitely have taken that. So, um, yeah, and and I don't I don't know if that will stay because you've got Racing Point coming on, uh, pretty hot. So, um, yeah, I, I think they're, they're going to struggle to keep hold of that. Well, looking at the run order of this show, we're we're already at the end of the race, which I suppose speaks to the fact that there wasn't a huge amount of drama away from the instance that we've already picked through. But one thing that stuck out. Uh, well, actually, it didn't stick out because I didn't notice it. It was Lucy, our producer, who, who mentioned it, and now we're both amazed that they weren't there. Uh, was there were no podium rows? We saw these at the steering Grand Prix. Absolutely amazing! These kind of round of square boxes that were like r- remote controlled and took the trophies to the drivers who were on the racetrack. In Hungary, they were back on a podium, and the, it was given out manually again. So that was that was a shame. I, I wonder. I wonder who at F1 thought the robots didn't pass the test because I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It, it? Yeah, it felt like a step backwards, you know, didn't it? For, for F1, which is such a technologically uh, evolved sport, and you think, wow, okay, now now we've reached peak F1, that the trophies are being delivered on mechanical robots, you know, platforms moving around. Um, but then, yeah, they actually moved the podium ceremony back to the podium, uh, which they hadn't done in Austria. Uh, I don't know whether the Hungarian podium is bigger, and therefore you've got more opportunities to social distance, or what, but it's very, very strange. And over the weekend, so we always get a little clue of what the podium ceremony is going to look like because we have the F2 races and the F3 races. And over the weekend, F2 and F3 did a very odd thing where they had the top three on the podium, which normal, okay, you know, top three are always on the podium. But then the constructor, who you'll notice uh, Mercedes tend to rotate who goes up. It was Peter Bonington, uh, uh, Hamilton's engineer this weekend. Anyway, uh, the F2 teams do the same. They, they send a team representative up there when they win. But he wasn't allowed up on the podium. He had to be down below in Parc Ferme. So they had this very strange situation where we had the three drivers above with champagne and then this poor guy sat down below, like, by himself, uh, kind of like, you know, just looking at trophy and like, all oh, right, well, I'd like to be part of the celebration, but apparently I haven't been allowed. 
So, um, yeah, I don't know what is going on with F1's podium ceremonies. I know, I know we said this is the year to experiment with stuff like that, but surely w- w- when you get to robots delivering trophies, you, you've hit the peak and, you know, it can only go downhill from there. So Yeah, um, and there's so much potential with that. You know, you can paint the robots up to look like the, you know, the national flag of that country. You can give them names. You can do all sorts of things. So uh, I say bring back the robots. Sorry if that's putting people out of a job, but, yeah, it's the 21st century. That's the way it is. Um, but uh, I suppose... On a more serious topic, you know, we're kind of joking around about robots and stuff like that and organisation of things. But uh, Lewis Hamilton has been vocal and has been brilliant over the past couple of months um, over the fight against racism. Um, it's been something that he's been talking about all season. We know that he took a knee ahead of every, all three races. He's been, I guess, encouraging F1 to take a stand. And, you know, he's launched a commission, Formula One's launched a commission. But he was quite critical after the race of what we saw at the beginning of the event, just before the national anthem really terribly organized uh i guess you call it a protest or stance drivers will come together we saw that in austria and again this was where it was a bit different we saw that on the grid in austria it was kind of under the podium here in hungary which again might be down to the layout of the track but it was really badly organized wasn't it i mean drivers didn't seem to know where they were meant to stand you know there's a picture on i actually tweeted it just just after the race you know lewis is on a knee uh, vettel's taking a knee you've got science there looking down he stood next to them looking for where he's meant to stand. Magnussen hadn't even got his end racism t-shirt on yet, you know, and he was looking for that. He didn't actually make it to the to the bit beforehand. So for such an important message, it was so messy. And um, I mean, Formula One's just got to be doing better at that sort of thing, especially three races in. Yeah, it's strange. So they seem to have left uh, the organisation of that moment to the drivers, um, which is fine because, uh, you know, the, the driver's, uh, should be allowed to make the stand that you know they want, and everyone's been quite clear on this that they don't want to pressure anyone into doing something. They want you know the drivers to to take the stand, and all the drivers have said they're against racism. So you'd think it would be united, but it it was really poorly organised. So they had that small period of time before um, the national anthem, but it really didn't seem like much time at all before the Hungarian national anthem started blaring out. And uh, you would have thought there's somebody there who is in control of the whole thing can say, look. This is, this is, you know, one of the most important moments of the weekend right now. Let's get this message out. Let's let the drivers, you know, all at least be in the right place. Uh, allow them to uh, send the message that they want to send uh, to, you know, the millions of people watching around the world. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get on with the race. And I understand it's all pressured and, and the, the, the time, you know, and the grid is, is, is very precious to the teams and stuff. But, you know, come on, this needs to be uh, straightforward and it really needs to be centrally organised, I think, by F1. Um, I know, I, I didn't actually hear exactly what Lewis said, but uh, he was talking about uh, the meeting, uh, the GPDA meeting, and, and how maybe not all drivers are on the same page on that one. Yeah, so it was, there were very interesting quotes, and I mean, he was actually specifically asked about Grosjean, and Grosjean is one of the directors of the GPDA, the Grand Prix Drivers Association, uh, along with Vettel. And Hamilton, I mean, you know, I think he's, he's, he's becoming less afraid of calling people out. We know he's already called out Ferrari and Red Bull and said that those teams haven't really done enough like Mercedes has done. But he said, you know, and, and again, like you said, I think it's important to clarify here that all drivers have said that they are against racism and that's a stance they've all taken. But the suggestion was that, that Grosjean has said, well, look, because we've done it once, we don't need to keep doing it. And I think that Hamilton says the opposite. He says, you know, this needs, he, we know this is going to be something that he's going to be doing before every race. It's something he's incredibly passionate about. And he said after the first race, it's not going to be solved just by kneeling, but this has to be something that we are consistently doing. It can't just be one race and then we stop doing it. 
Um, and we've, we've, we've kind of had the impression, haven't we, that all the drivers aren't on the same page about it anyway. You know, there's, there's, there was obviously in the first weekend some disagreements over what the kneeling gesture meant. I think that some drivers maybe, yeah, it just seems that it means maybe different things to different people. So that's okay as well because you can't force people to do one gesture, but clearly getting people on the same page is key. So um, what was also interesting was what he said about uh, Sebastian Vettel was he said that the two of them spoke earlier in the weekend and Vettel agrees is what Lewis said, you know, about the importance of the gesture. But then curiously, it wasn't raised in the GPDA meeting, which on one hand you think, okay, fair enough. But Lewis, I suppose, could could raise those things as well. So I'd be curious to see how those meetings are actually going down as well. And I think the most important thing you, you mentioned about it being organized by the drivers, Lewis is now going to write to F1 and say, you guys have to take the lead on this. You have to give us a platform to speak. And I think you're right. You know, Formula One can't. The first race, I think you can make an excuse and say, you know, we weren't sure exactly how best to do the message, but we've had three attempts to do it now. And if you get it wrong, it's a terrible look. And if you get it right, I think it's it's the bare minimum you can do. But getting it wrong and making it look so bad is, is just, yeah, it's just not really acceptable. So hopefully we see some improvement on that uh, at Silverstone. Yeah, and I think Lewis has also been, he's been incredible when he's talked about this. Um, uh, obviously, we, we report the quotes, but uh, when you see him talk in press conferences, virtual press conferences at the moment about this, uh, there's, you know, he, he, there's so much passion that, that you know, that, that there's, there's so much uh, real feeling that, go, that goes deep there. And, uh, and, and he said, you know, he doesn't want the other drivers to do it just because he's there. He, he doesn't want to be the one that's forcing them to do it. He wants to be able to have an open conversation with everyone about it and get to a point where they all believe it's the right thing to do. And, uh, and he still said, I think he said again today, and he said last weekend, uh, that he hopes by the end of the year that they'll all be united uh, in a single message. And who knows you know, what exactly that will be, whether it will be taking a knee, whether it will be something else. But if they can all be united and, and do something together uh, to, to send a message, I, I think that will be quite strong. And um, yeah, Lewis is working toward that. And you know, as we've said, and so many people have said, leading on the track and, and leading off it. Yeah, absolutely agree on Lewis, and you know he's. We know what his legacy on track is going to be, and he is really adding to his uh, to his off track legacy as well. Let's talk about the on track legacy because you know we know it's it's just a matter of time until he matches Schumacher in terms of race wins. Eighty six race win today. Schumacher finished on ninety one. I remember being a Schumacher fan back in the two thousands, and that when he set ninety one wins, no one thought we'd get anyone close to it. You certainly not in 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 such a short space of time. Um, it's an incredible record, first of all. And we were we were putting our heads together and working out when he might break those records. If he wins every race, you know, it, over the next month and a half, he will match it at Monza if he wins the next five races. And then he could, if assuming that happened, um, break the record at Ferrari's 1,000th race, which given Schumacher's legacy at Ferrari would, would be quite ironic. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable that we're even talking about this is that I know that we've, we've embraced it for so long, but when you actually put it, when you actually talk about it, it's an incredible legacy. The Schumacher's records did just seem unbreakable. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I think even more so uh, in the early stages of Lewis's career, because he had those years at McLaren where, you know, you'd be scraping wins together and everything. And uh, the thing is, we just didn't foresee Mercedes having such a long period of dominance. You know, this period of dominance, they're going to win it this year, aren't they? You know, there's no way around it. Uh, so, you know, they're going to have seven in a row, um, which Ferrari never did. And so that's, that, you know, it, it says it all. And uh, not to take away from Lewis, you know, he is in the best car at the moment, but uh, he's also going to get the job done. He's also got to beat his teammate. And his record on that is uh, is pretty astonishing too. 
So, um, yeah, fully deserved because if you look at the performances like Lewis has put in the moment and there's just nothing, there's no hole you can pick. You know, it's, it's so good. It's so pristine. And uh, he's operating on such a high level and seemingly getting better each year. Um, you know, it would, it would be great, as we've said so many times already in this podcast and previous podcasts, to see someone take the fight to him. But equally, uh, I think it would be fitting style almost if, uh, you know, he smashes that um, Schumacher record in a season where, you know, he is utterly dominant as well. And to be honest, if I was put, putting money on it, I, I would put, I'd put money on that happening. I don't know if I'd say by Monza. I don't, I not, I don't quite believe that uh, he'll have that run. I think somewhere along the way, uh, Valtteri will get involved or Mercedes will just have a bad race. You know, I mean, remember all it takes is one uh, reliability gremlin and uh, it, it can ruin a race entirely. But it, it, it's in sight now. And that's the thing. And, you know, it, it really is. And for so long, uh, Lewis has said, you know, these records don't matter and stuff like that. But I suspect when he matches Michael, uh, that's going to be a, a very special moment for him. And um, it's one which I think we should really celebrate because, uh, you know, he's not going to be around forever. He's, um, you know, he's going to retire from F1 at some point. So we've got to make the most of seeing this guy on this form uh, while he's here, even if it means that we're not having the most competitive racing. Yeah. And what's even more remarkable is we're talking about this now. And when he gets it, the next inevitable question is, does he get to 100 wins? Because he'll be nine away when he matches Schumacher, eight away when, he be, when he's gone past him. And again, like you said, you know, seven years ago, he was nowhere near that. I think he had 21 wins when he moved from McLaren to Mercedes. Um, he had half the amount Vettel had at that time. You know, he had, I think he had fewer, fewer wins than Alonso had at that time. And it's been, it's just been incredible what he's done in that time since. So yeah, absolutely remarkable. And um, I think for this, for the sake of our vanity and for the sake of the season, let's hope he doesn't do it as, as soon as um, we just predicted. Well, I think we've pretty much covered everything from the race, looking down the run order, barring a few little penalties that we won't want to bore people with. We've pretty much covered everything. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot, Lawrence, because, you know, I can do that. I'm kind of, hosting in Alexis' absence. Um, British Grand Prix and 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 the second race at Silverstone, the 70th anniversary race. Um, can Red Bull win there? Do you think we've seen anything that suggests Red Bull can win there or take the fight to Mercedes or is it going to be more of the same? No, I think the Hungaroring was, if anything, their chance to get close. And uh, if everything goes to plan, of course, you know, this is Formula 1, but if everything goes to plan and the cars are operating as as, as they have done, then that could actually be Mercedes' most dominant circuit of the three we visited um, on paper. Uh, it, you know, uh, Formula One's full of surprises, and uh, we also have a relatively long break in the in the kind of uh, yeah in 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 this season because we're used to all these back to back races, and now we've got one weekend off. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with mine yet. Probably just sleep. But um, yeah, we, we've actually got a little break, so maybe. Uh, this would be a kind of obvious place for some teams to target some upgrades. Um, we know a lot of it is tied down, what they can and can't do. Uh, the engine isn't going to be upgraded, for example. But, um, you know, who knows if, as I was talking about earlier, maybe if Ripple unlock a little bit of that performance, make the car that little bit easier to drive, it could turn into something um, much bigger uh, over a course of races. But yeah, on the basis of what we've seen so far, I'm saying that's Mercedes' most dominant circuit yet. There you go, Lawrence Edmondson, and I'm quoting him here when I say, abandon all hope, you enter here. That's basically what you said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I was talking up Red Bull's uh, chances this weekend, so like, you know, I, one, I'm often wrong, so that, there's a positive. 
Uh, and two, I'm, I'm fed up of kind of like trying to ignore the cold hard facts uh, and, and hope for something more competitive because right now the cold hard facts is that Mercedes have produced a remarkable racing car and, uh, and Lewis Hamilton is performing on a level that is pretty much as good as he's ever been at. So um, that combination is incredibly hard to beat. Make no mistake. Well, I'm glad you said it and not me, because that makes me the bad guy, you know, if I'm the one. And I'm pretty sure I, like, Alexis kept saying I was pretty negative on the, on the last show. Wait, 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 wait. Nate, what is your prediction for, uh, for the next races? Come on, something wild, something wild. Come on, give us some hope. Exactly the same as yours, unfortunately. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, let's, let's, let's throw something wild out there. I don't know. Uh, Albon on the podium. Let's say that. Let's get, let's get Alex Albon on there. He's, he's a tie driver, but, you know, he's, he's, he's also part British as well. So that'd be nice, even if there's not any fans there. That'll be, as much as I'm wanting to put my neck on the line now, because I'm not doing it with the guys, the guys out in front. Um, we'll have Alexis back with us uh, for the next show. Thanks so much for listening. Um, well, I think we do. I don't know how long the FA Cup's going on for, if they're playing it for eternity now. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. And we've got two weeks, and then we're back again doing it for the British Grand Prix. <laughs>